I'm going to read uh, three passages of Scripture to you uh, as the, uh, the, the basis for our next few sermons on what I'm calling a proper valuation of the public worship. So we're going to begin with Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 27. Then we're going to move over to Hebrews chapter 12, 22 through 25. And then finally we'll end with Psalm 87, the entire Psalm, 1 through 7. And those three passages will form the basis of our next set of sermons which will attempt to be an explanation of the Bible's valuation of the public worship that we might ourselves value it as highly as the Bible presents it and as the Lord also values it. So we begin with Galatians chapter 4 verse 21. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise, which things are an allegory. For these are the two covenants the one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all, for it is written... Rejoice thou barren that bearest not, break forth and cry thou that travailest not, for the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Now we brethren as Isaac was are children of the promise, but as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the scripture, cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Now we turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 22. But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator, of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. 
And then finally, we turn over to Psalm 87. A psalm or song for the sons of Korah. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loveth the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of thee, O city of God, Selah. I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to them that know me. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia. This man was born there. And of Zion it shall be be said, This and that man was born in her, and the highest himself shall establish her. The Lord shall count when he writeth up the people that this man was born there, Salah. As well the singers as the players on instruments shall be there. All my springs are in thee. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. Stephen Charnock will help us out with a quotation to begin this afternoon's sermon. The Reverend Charnock writes, Now it is certain God loves his church, for he loves the very gates and outworks. Psalm 87.2 He loves a cottage where a church is more than the stately palaces of princes. The gates were the places where they consulted together and gave judgment upon affairs. God loved the assemblies of his saints because of the truths revealed, the ordinances administered, the worship presented to him. I don't know, many of you may know this, some of you may know this, but Stephen Charnock was a student of John Owen. I don't know if you knew that or not, but he was one of Owen's prize students. All right, so we are going to review for a moment. We've been talking about valuing public worship properly. We've been talking about profiting from it. That's the title of the sermon series, Profiting from Public Worship. So what did we talk about? Well, the first few weeks we just took a, a broad sweeping overview of concepts that are required of the people of God if they would uh, properly use public worship. What did we say? Oh, we said things like regulation, a way of proceeding. We talked about reverence. We talked about propriety. We talked about humility. We talked about remembering who it was that we approached. Not like Jacob who finally woke up from his dream and said, the Lord is in this place and I knew it not. We don't ever want to go home from the public worship of the church and say, I don't know if God was there or not. We always want to be able to spy him out, if you will. Uh, In readiness to hear, we remembered our larger catechism and how we ought to hear the word of God and how it is to be read. We looked at Micah 6, 6 through 8, and and, and we talked about that that attitude you know what shall i bring before the high god and that was the question we all needed to ask ourselves what shall i bring how shall i approach the high god we heard a little bit about that earlier in psalm 15 didn't we who shall ascend into the tabernacle of the lord and abide there so all of those questions those are good questions questions that the people of god ought to be asking themselves week by week 
Then we, we also talked about preparation. And we talked about a general preparation and a specific preparation. And we saw how the, how the Lord used the term, prepare your hearts to seek the Lord. And how that was that broad day-by-day preparation. And that the way the scripture presents this to the people of God, especially as we come into the New Testament and all of the ceremonies fall away, except the one remaining Sabbath, that what we see is not special times of intense preparation, but a life of preparation from Sabbath to Sabbath. That we enter into our week with the wind of the Sabbath at our back, and we're pointed in the direction by that wind to the next Sabbath to come, and we are carried along in those exercises of piety and religion during the week. And that that doesn't preclude a more close preparation, say on Saturday night or Lord's Day morning. But we remember, didn't we, that we saw in Hezekiah's days that there were those who had prepared their hearts to seek the Lord, but their incremental preparation was not quite there. And that Hezekiah prayed for them, and they yet came and communed with the Lord. So all of that, we we want to remember that preparation, and we have some very dear brothers and sisters that we disagree with on this, and this doesn't separate us. It's just something we don't agree on. We need to be charitable to them. And so sometimes we will hear that there is this intense kind of preparation that is required for certain Lord's Days over other Lord's Days. Right? We want to remember that, that this is something that the Lord has not presented to us in Scripture. That what He's presented to us is that we come having prepared our hearts to seek the Lord. And then we come with that incremental preparation that is not an earth-shattering thing. It doesn't require day upon day upon day to do it. Because we're living day upon day upon day before the Lord. So I hope that makes sense. I hope that's been helpful to you. And I don't mean in saying what I've just said. To speak against the practice of my brethren. We all stand or fall before our Lord. Okay. Alright. So this next thing that I want to take up with you. Is something that I call valuation. Okay. Valuation, V-A-L-U-A-T-I-O-N. Um, <clears throat> we have people that do this for us, right? We're going to sell a house. We have an appraiser come out, and he'll tell us the value of our house. You want to sell a vehicle, you look, up, you look it up in the Kelly Blue Book, and there are increments and particular models, and does it have this feature, and does it have that feature, and so on. You look it up, and, and you say, okay, this is what my car is worth. here's the high, here's the low, right? Here's the wholesale price, here's the other price, right? Our car guy over here is shaking his head. So we have all of that going on, all right? So we understand what it means to put a proper value on things. We're always hearing about priorities and how we want to prioritize our lives properly in the right way that we put, you know, the big rocks in first. We we get those, those things that are very important done First, we want to make sure that we take care of that which is important prior- in, in, in way of priority before other things. Leave the things that can go by the boards uh, to last, 
see if you have time for them or not kind of thing okay we understand what it means to value things beloved it'll be my uh my goal over the next few weeks to show you from the scriptures how much the bible or god in his word values public worship such that our valuation of it might rise that's the goal so in three passages of scripture the three that i've chosen here galatians 4 hebrews 12 psalm 87 and when we get to psalm 87 we will we will borrow a little bit from the works of david clarkson some of you know that sermon psalm 87 uh, god loveth the gates of zion more than all the tents of judah public worship is to be preferred before private worship and may i say that in our day that's something of a radical concept there are people in churches today that will not go to church because they need to do private worship instead there are times in in public worship where people will remove themselves from the worship service with their brethren in order to do something private may i say very modestly that those are errors that the lord has a valuation on the public worship that far outstrips private worship and by the time we're done with psalm 87 and the works of mr clarkson and his instruction that we will all benefit from i trust we will be in agreement that the lord values public worship more than the tents of judah or the tents of jacob okay all right, well, let's talk about uh, the first passage that we read, Galatians chapter 4. <coughs> Again, let us enter into this study with a mindset of learning how the Bible presents the, the great value, advantage, riches, however you want to describe it, of, quote, Zion, Jerusalem, the church, public worship, so on, such that we begin ourselves to raise up our own understanding, that we begin to value that public worship even more than we do today. I fear, not, of course, never with you guys, ever. I fear that sometimes easy things take us off from it. Easy things come in the way of public worship. Um, I think we've talked about this before. You know, we want to ask ourselves that covenantal question, what if everybody did what I'm about to do? You know, so you would get up in the morning on Sunday, we're tired, oh, I'm too tired to go to church. What if everybody thought that? What if the pastor thought that? Right, what happens? Well, those are easy statements, uh, maybe a little bit out there, a little bit exaggerative, but they do help us with that proper understanding. So, let me, before I hone in on Galatians 4 for a moment, give you several points, mostly out of the Psalter, with regard to Zion. And maybe a, a word on terminology will help. One of the reasons I chose Galatians 4 and Hebrews 12 is because these passages speak about Zion in terms that she is still existing. In fact, there's even a differentiation that Paul will make in Galatians 4 between the Jerusalem that now is and the Jerusalem which is above. 
What he's going to do in that passage is he's going to talk about the Jewish religion that had existed since, you know, sometimes in, in, in theology class we call it Second Temple Judaism. Second Temple Judaism had devolved from the gracious religion of Adam, Noah, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Moses, Phineas, David, the prophets. And it had become a merit religion based on uh, a substandard view of God's law, a legalistic view of God's law. And so Paul will distance the Galatian church from that by saying that the Jerusalem which is above is our mother and is free, and the Jerusalem that is now is in bondage with Hagar. And we'll explain that when we get there. My thesis here for you is that when we think of uh, the church, we don't want simply to think of it as that uh, dispensationalist kind of understanding of the church where, you know, the church was born in 33 A.D., kind of thing. We want to think of the church as the people of God in every age. More like Stephen thought of the church in Acts chapter 7 when he said when he's talking about Christ and and Moses, he will say this is he that was with the church in the wilderness. There was a church in the wilderness. It was the people of God, those true those those folks who had entered into covenant with God and followed Moses through the Red Sea and were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and went into the wilderness together and then without Moses went into the land of Canaan. That was the church. It was also a political nation which confuses some people, but it was a church, make no mistake. It had a regular ministry in the Levites. It had a text, a divine text by which she preached. It had ordinances of the church. It was not any less a church than we are. Some of our older divines will call it the church of the Jews, which is fine. And some of the terms that are used for that are Zion, Jerusalem, sometimes Sion instead of Zion, right, with an S instead of a Z. That's just a thing that, you know, out of, uh, out of the Hebrew into the English, it's a T-S sound. So sometimes that's translated as Z or sometimes as, as just a regular S But those terms that we will learn from Galatians 4 and Hebrews 12, those terms yet apply to the church of the living God. We can speak of Zion as this place here. We can speak of Jerusalem as this place here. And these are legitimate Bible ways of speaking about the New Testament church. And so the church didn't begin in 70 A.D. And so when we run through several psalms here and we look at uh, these, these terms Zion and Jerusalem and so on, we want to understand as those psalms were written for the singing of the church in every age, and of course we know that because the people of God are most certainly to use them as they are commanded to do so in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, that They have an interpretation and understanding that pertains to the people of God of every age. And so using the term Zion or Jerusalem need not put us off. Right? 
we should be drawn in to the use of that particular term because it pertains to us. So let's look at a few places in the Psalter. And let's just think about this with regard to the church. Because one of the things that is so very fascinating to a student of the Bible about the church is this, that that when we think about Jerusalem, it was one place to which all of the people of God came. But in the New Testament, the Lord changes that. He overturns it in its entirety, doesn't he? And he says, now the church is every place. So the church has actually gone out to every place. Whereas at one time in human history or redemptive history, the church was a place to which all should come. Now, the church is that which traverses the earth, and in every place where she is found, the people ought to come there. Do you see how that has changed? That the church, that Messiah, when he came, raised up and made a church for all the world rather than for a little place there in a city called Jerusalem, a little ways off the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. When he made that church a worldwide institution, such that the, quote, forces of the Gentiles will flow into it, Isaiah tells us, that he took that church out of Jerusalem and planted it everywhere else. And in every place where the Lord's people are, that is Zion. Where there is the word of God that is purely preached. Where there, is, where there are sacraments purely administered. And where proper order and discipline are set forth. Beloved, that is Zion. <coughs> That's the Zion of the Psalms. The Jerusalem that is above, that has its corresponding visible part in, in, in the earth. right? The heavenly and earthly Jerusalem. But Jerusalem is no longer a city. And especially in our day, beloved, we must jettison our attachment to a piece of real estate called Yerushalayim. There is a Jerusalem that that Jerusalem knows nothing about. Okay, so with all of that said then, let's... Let's just run through a little bit of the Psalms. We are Psalm singers, so these passages will be familiar, but they will also be helpful. Why should we value the, the, uh, the church in the way that we should value it? In other words, how should we value it and why should we value it that way? The first thing is because the Bible presents her in with such terms as don't apply to anywhere else. There are those of you who have, who have bought and sold things. You understand that if something is rare, it costs more money. If something is very common, well, you know, they're a dime a dozen, we say. Okay? But the things that God does in and for Zion, He doesn't do for any other place. The things that we will talk about here, even in standard economic terms, raise up the value of Zion because they are rare. They're not done anywhere. Not just anywhere. 
They're done only here in Zion. So let's take a look at some of those things. First of all, the king is seated there, the Lord Jesus Christ. The king, the Lord Jesus Christ is seated there. And we would turn to Psalm 2 and verse 6 for that, would we not? I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Beloved, let me ask you this question. Is Christ seated on the throne today? Yes. He has taken his seat at the right hand of God. If he is a king that is seated on a throne, tell me then, over what does he rule? He rules over his house. And what is his house? Visibly speaking, it is this and other true professing churches of Christ. There's nowhere else in the world where Christ is king like he's king here. Psalm 2.6 Secondly, the Lord Jehovah dwells there specially and covenantally. The Lord Jehovah dwells there specially and covenantally. Now we might understand, we might uh, uh, undertake to know. Children, where is God? You know that answer from the small child's catechism, right? Some of you have already recited that answer for your pastor in the afternoons. Where is God? God is everywhere, isn't he? He is. God is everywhere, but he has reserved a special everywhereness, a special relationship for Zion. God is everywhere, but he is Savior here. God is everywhere, but he is revealer here. God is everywhere, but he is our God here. When we gather, we gather unto the Lord our God in his covenantal presence, as it were. How important is that? Well, it's very important. It's unique, and it raises up the value of Zion because he doesn't appear like that anywhere else. Um, fourthly, and we're not looking up all these scriptures for, for, for the sake of time. If you want them, send me a note and I'll send them back to you. Um, remember what Jacob said? <clears throat> this is a very interesting point. Let's go ahead and turn to this passage. Um, Genesis 28. We talked about this a moment ago. We said that Jacob said, surely the Lord is in this place and I knew it not. We, we never want to be in that position, obviously. But there's another thing that Jacob said in verse 16. And Jacob awaked out of his sleep and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I knew it not. Now, Jacob thought that he was all alone, fleeing from his brother. Right? Nobody to protect him, nobody to help him. Uh, was God in that place? He was. God is everywhere. Jacob is talking about a special, gracious presence of God here. 
He's just seen the ladder in a vision stretched between heaven and earth. And the angels of God ascending and descending upon that ladder. John 1.51 tells us that that's a picture of Christ. Christ was present to Jacob in all of his mediatorial regalia there. The church was there. Because it's where Christ is. Now watch. And Jacob, oh sorry, and he was afraid and said, how dreadful is this place. This is none other but the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. Beloved, this uniqueness of the church being the gate of heaven, it doesn't exist anywhere else, this gate. The gate of heaven is found here where the keys of the kingdom are so that the gates can be opened, so that the larder of the house can be opened. And so the servants can be given what they need spiritually to enter into those gates and to commune with their Lord. This is the gate of heaven and that doesn't exist anywhere else. We already said, didn't we, in our confession of faith, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. I didn't time that, by the way. I don't time our recitals to our preaching. This is the Lord. So Jacob said, this is the gate of heaven. It is the house and family of God. 1 Timothy chapter 3, 15 and 16. <clears throat> Fourth, the Lord himself is blessed out of Zion by the praises and obedience of his people. Now we might also understand, and there are psalms to this uh, to this effect, but they must be taken in, you know, according to truth and according to reality, because there's some figurative language in the Bible. We, often we hear about the birds praising the Lord. Sometimes in Scripture we'll hear about the the senseless animals going about their courses praising the Lord. Okay, well let's make sure we understand that that's not the same praise that lifts up from Zion. Into the ears of her God. Into the ears of her Savior. Right? This is that concerted praise. That focused praise. That convicted praise. That commanded praise. This is not simply the senseless or uh, 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 volitional. Uh, uh, you know, apart from any volition working of the animals and doing what God created them to do. This is the intentional, convicted praise of the Lord that goes up to Him as a covenant people. Sometimes in Scripture we're spoken of individuals as individuals, and sometimes we're spoken of as a covenant people, as a unit, together. And it is as that unit that we are depicted in those passages in the book of Revelation where we see that there is a myriad of people from every kindred tribe and tongue the greatness of which cannot be numbered why did God see to give John the vision like that so that the greatness of the grace of God would be magnified that's here when people of every kindred and tribe and tongue join together, even in small assemblies like this one, we come with one purpose, with one focus, to lift up praise to God. Beloved, 
That doesn't take place anywhere else in the world. Nowhere else. And it is in that sense the gate of heaven again. Zion fifth uh, is, or sixth I guess, is the, is the place, that beautiful, enduring, and beloved city. And therefore she is to be cherished and honored. There is no city but the city of the Lord that is called a holy city. Oh, I know, we have our holy sites and we have the holy land and we have all that stuff that goes on. That's just a lot of superstition overall. There's only one city in the world that's a holy city and that's the city of Zion. And why is it holy? Because, beloved, you know, maybe you're a business owner and you, and you say, I have dedicated my business to God. We're going to make widgets for God's sake. Okay. That's good. Nothing wrong with that. But you're not dedicated to God. You're dedicated to making widgets for God. Let's make sure we get that straight. Because here, the dedication is directly to God without an intermediate client or customer. God is the customer. God is the king. God is the direct recipient of all of our praise and worship. This is a holy city like no other city or business or entity is holy. The church was built up out of holiness, right? You can have a family, and that family can be a believing or an unbelieving family. You can have a business. It can be run by believers or unbelievers. You can have a government. That government can be a believing or unbelieving government. And while you can have synagogues of Satan, we know they're not the church. But when we talk about the church, she's a holy city like nothing else is holy. Because her warp and woof, her purpose is only to glorify God, to sing His praise, to hear His teaching, to receive and offer her sacrifices, and so on. That's it. Take that away, there's no reason to have a church. Take that away and you can still make widgets. You can still have a family. You can still have a business and a country. But you don't have a church if you take that away. The church is unique in that, and therefore, she is valuable. And to be valued. Do you desire beloved. To offer praise to your God. He will receive it from you. For Christ Jesus sake from your closet. He will. But he. Loves the gates of Zion. More than all the dwellings of Jacob. When disparate folks like we are. Or others like us in different parts of the world. Gather together. To praise the Lord with one heart. Like it says of the, of the first century assembly there in Acts chapter 4. They lifted up their voice. The Greek word is anathumadon. With one holy passion unto the Lord. That doesn't take place anywhere but here. Just here. That's it. And then... Zion is that beautiful and enduring place, as we said a moment ago. It is beautiful and enduring. All of the other cities of the world, they come and they go. But Zion will never fail. 
she will come down from heaven at the end of days and extend into glory as a bride prepared for her husband. If you value things that last a long time, you must value Zion. She will never, never perish. She is the city of the living God. <clears throat> so now let's go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 4 and spend the last few moments that we have in that passage. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> All right, Galatians chapter 4, and let's turn back there to verse 21. There were Christians who had heard the gospel when Paul came and preached to the churches of Galatia. Let's make sure we know what those churches are. That's Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, Antioch, Pisidia. First missionary journey churches. Okay? He came to them, and remember that the, uh, the problems that they had with the Jews... Well, what happened is the Jews developed a different strategy. There were people that were ready to confess Christ as their Messiah, but to continue on in the religion of merit that they received from their fathers, the vain tradition that they received from their fathers in Second Temple Judaism, merit religion. That's why Paul will say, if you are circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. That's what he'll tell the Galatian churches. So he must then begin to separate the Galatian churches from Judaism generally. And he will do that with some very interesting words over the next few verses. So in 21 he will say, Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not hear the law? This is a wonderful statement. There are maybe five sermons in just that one verse. Because what Paul is telling them is, if you really understood what the law required, you wouldn't desire to be under it. You'd, want to be, you'd run like the plague from it. Because if you're under the law, you are under the curse. There's just no way to get around it, Paul will say. So if you say, I, I, yeah, I want to be under the law, like our fathers were. He will say, our fathers really weren't under the law in the sense that you mean it. They weren't under the law in that way. The religion of Jehovah has never been a religion of merit. It has always been a religion of grace. And, you know, in your private study, prove out what Pastor Todd just said by turning to Hebrews chapter 11 and hearing that Abel was justified by faith, Noah was justified by faith, Abraham was justified by faith, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah were justified by faith. Enoch was justified by faith. Moses chose the reproach of Christ over the greatest riches of the land that could be imagined in Egypt. No, they were all people of grace, not people of works. And so when that religion, that ugly religion of merit, raises its head in the Galatian churches, Paul goes on the war path. That's why the introduction to Galatians is different from all the other introductions. The salutation is very simple, very direct, and very telling. If anyone preaches unto you a gospel other than what we preached, 
even if we come back to you and preach a different gospel, if it's us, let him be accursed. He'll bring that curse down upon himself. Because the gospel that he preached was not from men, it was from God. So certain was he of that. So you that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? It is written, Abraham had two sons, one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondmaid was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise, which things are an allegory. Oh boy, this is, you know that this is the only place where the, where the Greek word allegoria is used in all of the New Testament. But this is a real scriptural allegory. What is the allegory that Paul is setting up here? He's saying that, okay, so Abraham had two wives. He shouldn't have, but he did. He had Hagar and he had Sarah. And he had a son with Hagar and he had a son with Sarah. And the son that he had with Hagar was born, quote, after the flesh. And the son that he had with Sarah was born, quote, after the promise. And so he says, now let's pull up from that historical circumstance and let me tell you a story. Let me give you an allegory. These little lads represent two religions. They represent two religions. The first religion is a religion of bondage, a religion of the flesh, a religion of merit and human effort, which always falls short, right? Even a simple biblical numerology will teach you that. What is the number seven? It's the number of completion or perfection. It's a divine number, isn't it? Just like three is a divine number. Well, you take three and you add it to four and you get seven. And so you take, you take what God has done, uh, that number three, and you take his interaction and covenant with man and you end up with the number seven. If you multiply them, you get 12. That's why seven and 12 are important numbers in the scripture. But what is the number of man? Do you remember from the book of Revelation what the number of man is? Well, what day was man created? Day six. And the number of a man is six. Six. Six, coming, going, and everywhere in between, he falls short. Right? This is why the religion of merit is always a religion of bondage. And Ishmael represents that religion of bondage. But the allegory is continued. There's something more that is added to the allegory. It's not just Isaac, but it is the Jerusalem which now is the Jerusalem which now is Paul will say or first century Jerusalem what's going on in first century Jerusalem when Paul is writing this well we don't have to wonder too much we've read the gospel record and we've read the book of Acts we know what's going on in Jerusalem at that time they're plotting against Christ all through the gospels they even plot against Lazarus because Christ raised Lazarus from the dead they want to they want to get that guy into the grave and keep him there to get rid of the evidence. Right? They're plotting against Christ the whole way through. That's the Jerusalem that now is, Paul says. And it has devolved into a religion of merit. It's a religion of law. It's a religion of behaviorism. It's a behavior, I'm sorry, it's a religion you do everything you can and God will accept your good works if they outweigh the bad or 
some other strange equation like that. Of course, that's always a self-deception, isn't it? You must always move the law away and substitute something in its place to show some kind of obedience because nobody obeys the law perfectly. So, what does Paul say about it? He who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. The one is from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Hagar, and we think of Hagar and her son, Ishmael. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. So Paul will make it very clear that the religion of the flesh, the religion of human effort, not the religion of promise. And let's make sure we understand something very clear, that it was a crisis and failure of faith that caused Abraham to go into Hagar and have a son. That was flesh. That was human effort. God hasn't given me a son by my wife. I'll help him out. Right? God hasn't given me perfection. I'll help him out with my own works. Those are the parallel themes. So, what about the other son? But he who was, well, one by the bondmaid and one by the free woman. Who's the free woman? That's Sarah. The bondmaid is Hagar. The free woman, he that is born of the free woman, verse 23, was by promise. And promise, beloved, involves in it the idea of faith. God made a promise. You trust in it. You rest upon it. You don't uh, bring forth your own carnal efforts to bring forth the promises of God. You trust God to bring his promises out in due time. (coughs) Excuse me. So, notice, uh, the free woman was by promise. These things are an allegory. The first one, we talk about Sinai. And isn't it interesting how then Sinai in Arabia, that's where God came down and gave the Ten Commandments, that that becomes associated with the Jerusalem which now is. In other words, she's just like Sinai. She's concerned about the law and behavior and not grace. Okay? For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, answers to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. Galatians, you don't want to get associated with the Jerusalem that now is. We could say that today. Christians, you don't want to get associated with the Jerusalem that now is. That's a religion of merit. It's an anti-Christian religion. Verse 26. But... Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice thou, barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of the promise. And again, promise and faith, they go right together. And so what happens here? Paul makes a distinction between the Jerusalem that existed in his day as a, as a city-state in what we would call Palestine or whatever you want to call it. And then there's another 
Jerusalem that he mentions, and he says, it's the Jerusalem which is above, or what the writer in Hebrews 12 will call the heavenly Jerusalem. And notice the liberty of that Jerusalem. The liberty of it. Well, now wait a minute, Pastor. What liberty are we talking about? It's not under the bondage or the tutelage of the law any longer. It's a Jerusalem where the people of God have the law of God written savingly upon their hearts by the preaching of the word and the proper administration of the sacraments and the exercise of godly discipline. Remember, all three of those things go together for the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. And so when the people of God gather in Jerusalem, and that's the Jerusalem that is truly related to the heavenly Jerusalem, and I will just tell you that it is my view that in the ancient Near East there was a heavenly Jerusalem in the days of the Old Testament, as well as an earthly Jerusalem, while Jerusalem was still a faithful city for that short period of time. That she always answered to the heavenly Jerusalem. The heavenly Jerusalem is that archetype of the true religion. And there was a time when that existed in the Old Testament. When Jerusalem was truly faithful. But now in the days of the New Testament. Paul will say there is this heavenly Jerusalem. And the religion of Jehovah today doesn't follow the earthly Jerusalem It follows the liberty of the heavenly Jerusalem where we are no longer under the covenant of works. Where we are no longer justified by our own carnal behavior which is an impossibility. It was impossible to innocent Adam and it's impossible to us as well. And so this Jerusalem Where we gather today is, as Paul will call it, the mother of us all. And why is it called the mother of us all? Well, we've been covering this, haven't we, in 1 Peter chapter 2. Because it is in the context of that word and spirit that the church, if you will, you know, come with me a little bit in the allegory here, gives birth. To people gives birth to those who are regenerated, who are who are brought out of darkness into light. It is in the context of that visible church where the gospel is preached, the Spirit moves, people of God come to Him, they confess Christ, they are they have the law of God written savingly upon their hearts. The heart of stone is taken out of their flesh, and a heart of flesh is put in their flesh. And that happens in the context of this Jerusalem, which is above, which is called our mother. And so I'll put it to you this way, that every visible church is required, is required to be connected to the heavenly Jerusalem by way of sound doctrine, proper administration of the sacraments, godly discipline. And when that church exists, she becomes The mother of the people of God in the sense that she gives them birth and she gives them nourishment. Right? They taste and see that the Lord is good and they desire more. They keep coming back for more to be nourished by their mother. The things that we have available to us in the church, beloved, are not available anywhere else. 
when Christ ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men in the context of his body, the church. So, Paul will call the church our mother. Shall we then dishonor our mother or shall we value her? Well, I think we will all answer we should. Hey, don't you go talking about my mama like that. We value our mothers, right? And so the Jerusalem which is above, which is manifested in every faithful particular church, is indeed our mother. And it is from her that we are born again and nourished unto eternal life. Turn to Hebrews 12 for just a moment and we'll just barely introduce what we have to say and we'll come back to it, Lord willing, next week. In Hebrews chapter 12, we have very similar language As a matter of fact, here Paul is not talking to Galatian Christians that are in danger of Judaizing. But in this passage he's talking to Hebrew Christians that are in danger of Judaizing. Of falling back into Judaism away from the gospel of Christ. And what will he tell them here in chapter 12? (coughs) In verse 18 he will say, you are not come unto the mount which might be touched and that burned with fire nor into blackness, darkness, tempest, sound of a trumpet, (coughs) the voice of words and the voice, which voice uh, they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure that which was commanded and if so much as a beast touched the mountain it should be stoned or thrust through with a dart, and so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. In verses 18 through 21, uh, the apostle here, I may slip and say Paul, because I believe Paul wrote Hebrews, but I may slip from time to time. Can't be dogmatic on it, but it is my belief. Um, The apostle here will say, this is the mountain you haven't come to. What mountain is it? It's Mount Sinai. And why Mount Sinai? Because Mount Sinai contained not only the giving of the moral law, but all of the ceremonial laws, all of the civil laws. All of that was wrapped up with Sinai. And at the end of those 40 days, right, which happened twice, there was one 40-day of weeping and one 40-day of instruction. The Lord said to Moses, you guys have stayed here long enough. Get you, know, get you down the road to your journey. And that happens in the book of Numbers. But all the while we finish out the book of Exodus, we're still in and around the environs of Sinai. And so the apostle will tell them, you haven't come to that mountain. Come to a different mountain. And then he will go on to describe the mountain that they have come to. Notice what he says in verse 22. But ye are come into Mount Zion, (coughs) and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, and that firstborn one that's in the plural in the original, to those who are the firstborn ones, which are written in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that ye refuse not him 
that speaketh. May I say that the apostle here, and we'll close with this, he is not describing a mystical estate that they will undertake with their eyes rolled back in their heads in their closets. What mountain have they come to? They've come to the church. Yes, it has a heavenly archetype and an earthly manifestation. But the things that are said here about the church, as we said before, we say again, they are not available anywhere else. These great spiritual privileges and blessings are not available anywhere else. And the enemy of our souls has convinced the bulk of the church that these things are available anywhere. Hasn't he? And so the credit, may I say value, of the visible church goes down in our age. And the credit or value of private piety goes up. Closet religion. But the things that are undertaken here in Hebrews 12 are not closet things. They are public items that the people of God enjoy in covenant with one another in the public worship. So, if we're going to profit from public worship, again, here's our, here, here's our thesis. We're going to have to value it properly. We're going to have to value the church properly and all that God has given to it. And a part of that value is that there are things here that cannot be taken up anywhere else. Her uniqueness makes her opulent and rich. Let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the institution of the visible church. We thank Thee that although in some era of the, um, of the history of redemption, that there were times when the visible church appeared mainly in patriarchal families. But that then there came a day when thou didst indeed set up a public church where the people of God should come together to enjoy blessings that could not be enjoyed anywhere else. The blessings uh, that lead us to salvation in Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that, as it is said here in our passage before us, that we would not refuse him that speaketh, that we would not fail to hear thy good word and how thou hast lifted up the credit and value of that visible assembly. O oh Lord, we pray that thou wouldst teach us to value it more and more, and that thou wouldst take out of our mouths any thought of complaint or murmuring at, quote, having to go to church. That our love for what thou hast established in the visible church and its connection to the heavenly Jerusalem would turn our hearts from a have to to a get to to an I can't wait. Grant us anticipation. Grant us that we might come thinking not hard thoughts of thee, but good and comfortable thoughts of thee, where we would be encouraged to profit 
from these things that are only available here. And we pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.